Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, um, I want to start with just a, a brief quote from my favorite, one of my favorite TV shows out there. Uh, how many of you have seen the TV show Parks and Recreation? It's on NBC. Uh, it's a sitcom. It's um, not always the funniest, uh, but most of the time it is. And uh, in, uh, Parks and Rec is a story or chronicles the story of this parks department in fictional Indiana or fictional Pawnee, Indiana. And it shares uh, of all of the best efforts of, of these people to make their city a better place, but that they're often paralyzed by the bureaucracy of local government. At one point, one of the main characters is uh, running for city council office. Her name is Leslie, and she uh, recruits all of her Parks Department co-workers to help her in their spare time. And one of them, his name is Jerry. And Jerry is an interesting fellow. He can never do anything right. And Jerry is in charge of stuffing flyers into envelopes. And he does like 30,000 of them. It takes him hours. And he goes into this mindless state of lick, or a fold, stuff, lick, repeat. Fold, stuff, lick, repeat. It goes on and on and on. And eventually, as he finally reaches the end, something hits him. He put the wrong flyer in all of the envelopes. And so he simply just says, well, it's like I always say, it's not government work if you don't have to do it twice. And that line right there, while it's comical, funny, probably because sometimes it's often true, uh, I, I feel like it does a good job of representing what our culture sometimes thinks of work. Not just of government work, but of all types of work. We oftentimes think that it is mindless. We think that it is futile, that it's inefficient, that it's a necessary evil. And sometimes we even think that it's a four-letter word. But is it? Is work only a necessary evil? Or does God have something more for us? Is the only option for us to work towards the weekend? Or is the only redeeming quality of work the paycheck that we receive at the end of two weeks or at the end of the month? In fact, why do we work? What is the point of all of the stuff that we do? Is work only worth what we can get out of it? Or does it have some sort of intrinsic, inherent value to it? What is work? Is all work, are all jobs created equal? Is God more pleased with me and my role as a pastor than he is with those who are out planting right now in the fields? Is there a hierarchy of jobs that God looks at and says, yes, I like that one more. You should be in that role. Those are the questions that we're going to be answering over the next two and a half months or so as we begin this new series. As I mentioned, we're starting a series called Work Matters to God. And you can probably guess by the series name that uh, we here at Crosswinds believe that all work matters to God. We don't have this sitcom-esque view of work, but work matters to God. Now, these questions, especially the question of why do we work, they're crucial for us. Just think of that amount of time that you spend working. Let's say that you work a 40-hour-per-week job, and many of you probably work more than that. That means that you work 20 or over 2,000 hours per a year. 
Then, of course, we have the times where you are working, but you're not getting paid for it. Let's say you do an additional 10 hours a week of non-paid work, things like mowing, things like cleaning your house, doing repairs, helping others, parenting your children. Again, very conservative, saying we're only doing 10 hours a week of that per, uh, per week. That's another 520 hours per week. Does God care about those 2,500 hours each year? Yes, absolutely. And that's the focus of our upcoming series. God cares about what we do with our lives, and that includes what we do when we are working. It doesn't matter if we are as parents or as pastors or as missionaries or teachers or administrators or pharmacy technicians or construction workers or grocery clerks or farmers or doctors. God cares about what we do with our work. And that's what we're going to be looking at the next few months. We're going to explore the role that our faith plays in our work. But we're also going to look at the role our work plays in our faith. It's an important thing to notice because our faith should influence our work. And the work that we do, the way that we work, should influence the way that we approach God as well. But before we start this morning, as we focus on God's original plan for work, what is the original purpose God had for work, I think it's appropriate for us to take a few moments and just talk about some definitions, get some things out there that are going to be really important for us the rest of our time together in this series. And so a couple notes of clarification for us as we start this morning. First, as we talk about work, it's important for us to recognize that work has intrinsic value, not just instrumental value. Work has intrinsic value, not just instrumental value. Let me explain that. Most of our society, honestly, most of the church tends to think of work as just having an instrumental value. It is only worth as much as you get out of it. It's only worth as much as the paycheck that you get at the end of the week, so that way you can uh, support the church or support missionaries or give to charity. Or it's only worth what you can do to share the gospel with others. Opportunities to share about Jesus with those that you work with. But here at Crosswinds, we believe that work has intrinsic value. There's a, there's a value to it that doesn't just uh, come from what you do with it, but rather it has value in itself. This is a biblical understanding of of work. Just think of the implications of this. If work has intrinsic value, then everything that you do matters to God. It actually raises the value of your work, not just as something that you can do to get a paycheck, but rather something that God wants to see done. Work has intrinsic value, not just instrumental value. Second, we here at Crosswinds define work as contribution, not just compensation. Okay, that's an important clarification for us. Work is anything that you do to contribute, not just what you are compensated for. Again, think of the implications of this. Women who stay home at work, while they might not be compensated for the things they are doing, they are certainly contributing God sees their work as just as important as the work that I do, just as important as the work that all of us do. It has implications for stewardship. The work that we do landscaping on our house or improving things or, or making our house look nicer actually is work that God wants to see done. 
It's contribution. It's not just compensation. Or think of those who are on the verge of retirement or are in retirement. They might not be compensated for the things they are doing, but they can still contribute with their lives. They can still do stuff that matters to God through working for him. And another example, high school students, as they are going into figuring out what their career is going to be, this is crucial for us. I know the temptation to go and try to find the highest paying job that you can. But thinking of work as contribution and not just compensation reminds us that there might be a better fit for me that might not bring home the biggest paycheck. God wants work done and that's going to look different for each and every one of us. Work is contribution not just compensation. Again, we're going to come back to that over and over again in our time together. First, that work has intrinsic value. Second, that work is defined by contribution, not by compensation. This morning, I mentioned we're going to look at God's original plan for work, and I think the most appropriate place to look for that plan is at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the first two chapters of the entire Bible. As we look at what happens before the fall. As we look at what happens before sin enters into the world, we can see God's original plan for work, and it can be summed up really in three words. Work is worship. Work is worship. Your work provides you with an opportunity to worship God. But not only that, we have to be careful because there is the pitfall of worshiping our own work. Work is worship, but do not worship your work. What do we mean by work is worship? Well, that's what we're going to be exploring the rest of our time together this morning as we are entering into Genesis 1 and 2 to see what the Bible has to say about God's original plan for work as worship. So what do Genesis 1 and 2 have to tell us about work? Well, first they tell us that work is good. Work is good. There's nothing, uh, there's no argument with that. Work is good. God created the world. God created work, and he created it good. You probably are familiar with the story of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. They tell the story of creation, of the way God created the world. It also provides us a glimpse of what things were like before sin, before evil entered into the world. Genesis 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, that God created light, that God created the land and the sea, that God created plants, animals, and humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, we see, God, or we see the passage focused specifically on how God created humanity and how God created the Garden of Eden. What might be surprising to us is that work is present before sin. Before the fall, which takes place in Genesis chapter 3, there is work that God wants done. There's work that God has for Adam and for Eve. This is found throughout Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we see that God created us to work. God created us to work. That's our purpose, one of our purposes here on earth. The reason why Adam and Eve were in the garden was to work. The reason why we are here today is to work. It's found, again, throughout these chapters. I just want to look at one verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. To do what? To work it and to keep it. God placed man in the garden to work it and to keep it. 
Our work and our labor, although sometimes it may be painful, is not a result of the fall, but is instead the original plan of God. It's a part of his original creation. We were created to work. You might be saying, well, why? Why did God create us to work? It's because God himself works. God is a God who works. Genesis is filled with stories of God at work. Um, You look at the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. God is a God who works. He likes work. He thinks that it's a good thing for us to do. He enjoys working, and so he made the stars. He enjoys creating things, and so he made the Rockies. He enjoys forming things, and so he created the Grand Canyon. God is a God who works. Genesis chapter 1 tells us or shows us this picture of God as a God who works. But it's a very distinct picture of God. His power is emphasized. He speaks and things happen on the earth. He speaks, light is formed. He speaks, the world comes into existence. Plants form, animals form. He speaks and things happen. It's a very business-like account. It's a very uh, straightforward, structured, dictation account of creation. But in Genesis chapter 2, we have a very different picture of the way God is at work. I encourage you sometime to look at Genesis 1 and 2 and look at the difference between the way God is in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. They're not contradictory by any means. They're just showing us very different ways that God is at work. And they're very important ways for us. In Genesis chapter 1, God is, uh, his power is emphasized. It's very businesslike. But in Genesis chapter 2, he's very hands-on. He gets his hands dirty in creating things. He makes man and he looks at it and says, wow, that was good. But it could be even better. And so let's go ahead and create woman as well. God is the ultimate creative type in Genesis chapter 2. I think it's crucial for both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to be in Scripture. Because each and every one of us has a tendency to be more like God in Genesis 1 or more like God in Genesis 2. Maybe we're very business-like in the way we approach work and our roles, our occupations. Maybe we're very creative. Maybe we're very hands-on in our roles. The fact that God does both Shows us that God values both equally. God is a God who is very businesslike. But God is also a God who has his hands dirty. He gets down in the dirt and forms things that is creative. God is a God who works. He enjoys working. He didn't create creation because he needed it. He didn't create the world because something was lacking. The only biblical explanation for why God created the universe is because he wanted to. He enjoys creation. He enjoys working. It doesn't matter what kind of work that is. So we see that we were created to work. We see that God works himself. What's the connection there? Well, it's that we are created in God's image, that God created us in his 
image. This is a profoundly important truth from Scripture. I want to just read two verses here from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 about this concept of being created in the image of God. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and of the, of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. I mentioned that the image of God is a very important doctrine. It's, it's actually where we get our concept of all, of all life, all humanity, having dignity. It means many things, but I just want to zero in on what it means for work. It means that we mirror God in our work. We try to image him. We try to follow him in our work. It's one of the ways that we are like God. Of course, that leads to a follow-up question. Well, if we are supposed to be like God in our work, how does God work? What does God do when he works? How do I mirror God in my work? I just want to focus on two things that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 talk about. First, we mirror God in our creativity. God is a creative God. I mean, you just look at the two chapters we're looking at. God is a very creative God. I want you to imagine that you have been tasked with the job of creating the entire universe from scratch. There's no universe that has ever existed There's no physical thing that has ever existed. And your job is to create the entire universe. I know if I created the entire universe, I probably wouldn't have thought of color. Probably everything would be black and white. Definitely if I thought of some color, it would have probably only been like three or four different colors. Not millions of colors. Probably everything would have been a straight line. I wouldn't have thought of curves. Make things look very uh, much more appealing that way. God is a creative God, and although we are nothing like him in our creativity, we are still creative ourselves. Adam starts things off in Genesis chapter 2 when his first job in the garden is to create names for the animals. Can you imagine being tasked with that job to name every single animal that was on the face of the earth? Again, I probably would have done a very poor job at that. Probably would have just named them after what sounds they made. Dogs would have been called roofs. Cats would have been meows. Cows would have been moos. Lions would have been big bearded meows or something like that. Humanity is creative. And praise God, there are many people who are much more creative than us. The creativity of, of humanity is astounding. In fact, if you've ever watched the TV show Shark Tank, it's a... a TV show that's primarily based on this concept of the creativity of humanity. It's a show where a bunch of entrepreneurs or investors listen to different business pitches about different projects or different businesses. The entire story, the entire show exists because of the creativity that humanity has made in God's image. We mirror God in our creativity. Second thing that we mirror God in is in cultivation. And I want to explain that by first reading Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says this, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
We mirror God in cultivation. What does that look like? Well, first, it looks, we see the first command being fill the earth here in this verse. God calls us as humanity to fill the earth, to make more humans. He gives the same command in, uh, to the animals in, in chapter 1, verse 22. But there's something different about the command to the animals and, there's a, and the command to humanity. God wants not just human individuals, but God wants human society. God wants us to create society, create civilization with our lives. He created us to live in community. And so when there are more of us, the more that there are, the more complex our society and our civilization gets. And that's what God wanted. He wanted the earth to be filled, not just with his image bearers, but with the civilization, with the society of his image bearers. So what does cultivation mean? Well, first it means to fill the earth. I want to skip that second command in, in verse 28, and just uh, and we're going to come back to it. If you notice, the, the third command that is given in, in verse 38 is to rule the earth or to have dominion. See, God is a king. God rules his universe with absolute power. And we are his image bearers, and as such, we represent him. In the same way that he rules creation, he has tasked us, he's entrusted us to rule it, to govern it ourselves. There's been a lot of debate in the past over what dominion means, whether it means to dominate, whether it means to exploit the earth or to abuse it. But that's not what he's saying here. Remember, this takes place or is written before the fall. God wants humanity to rule his creation as stewards, not taking advantage of it because God is the one who owns it, but to care for it. What does caring for creation look like? That's why we come back to our second command, and that is to subdue the earth. What does it mean to subdue the earth? It means to assert our will over it. To assert our will over the earth. I want to give an example of this. Crystal and I, as many of you know, are expecting our first child here in about a month. And with that new child has, uh, has come a lot of new furniture that we've never had a use for, uh, like a crib. We had to get one of those. We got our crib off of Amazon. And how many of you would guess that our crib came ready to go right as we pulled it out of the box? We could have put our child right in there. Anyone? All right, good. Yeah, you've, you've, you've purchased these kind of things before. Um, how many of you think that there was some assembly required? Absolutely. And I made my father-in-law do all of it. There was some assembly required in creating that crib. God created humanity and created the world in the same way. He didn't create it just to be pulled out of the box, plugged in, and ready to go. He created it with some assembly required. God could have very easily created houses for each and every one of us to live in. God could have very easily created uh, cities for us to eventually live in, but God didn't. Instead, God decided to create trees. God decided to create raw materials. He decided to create rock. He decided to give us the ability to create concrete, to use stone to shape it. God instead created the raw materials and said, I want you to subdue it. I want you to assert your will over it. I want you to cultivate this. God could have very easily created farm fields, but instead he created plains and he created us with brains and he said, hey, go to work. Make this something that's a little more efficient. Make this something that's a little more effective, a little more productive. That's what it means to assert our will, to cultivate, 
today, to subdue the earth. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. He says this, the word subdue indicates that even in its original unfallen form, God made the world to need work. In fact, he made it such that even he had to work for it to become what he designed it to be, to bring forth all of its riches and potential. It is no coincidence that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God tells us to follow him in doing the same things that he has been doing, filling and subduing. Just look at the order of creation. God could have very easily, in Genesis chapter 1, said, let there be creation, and everything would have happened. It would have been just as easy for God to do that. But instead, if you look at the the progression of the story, God creates raw materials, and then he forms them, and then he shapes them. God first creates the earth, and then a little bit later, he forms it. He separates land from the water. He fills it with plants and animals and eventually us. God takes raw materials and he, uh, he asserts his will over it. He subdues it. He cultivates it. And as his image bearers, we are called to do the same thing in our lives, making it more useful, more productive. Crystal and I, we, uh, we live in a house that I have um, dubbed a reclamation project a couple times. It has kind of been let go by its previous owners, and I like pretending to know what I'm doing and trying to fix it up, uh, make it something more than what it is currently. When we are doing that, we are mirroring God by cultivating. We're taking something, we're taking the raw materials that we have and making it more useful some of the time. We're making it more improved uh, when Tom Straub comes and helps me, and we are restoring it to its original condition. It is an act of cultivating what we have been given. Work is good because God works, and part of that work is cultivation. But what does that look like in different vocations? Uh, One I've already mentioned, a relatively um, easy one to understand because they still use the word in it, uh, farming. What does it look like to cultivate in farming? Well, we take the raw materials of soil, of rocks, unfortunately, of seed and water, and we make something more out of it, produce food from it. What do teachers do in cultivation? They take the raw materials of a student's mind and given the heavy task of molding that to help students reach their potential. They are cultivating what God has given them. Construction, they, they cultivate by building new places. Auto shops cultivate by creating engine parts and restoring cars. There are people who are indirectly involved in, cultiv- in cultivation, in sales, in helping businesses with loans, and providing training and financial liber- li- uh, literacy, and delivering goods via semi, and countless other things. We mimic God in cultivating our world and asserting our will over it. God created us to work. Work is good. But that's not the only thing that we see about God's original plan for creation. What else do we see about this? Well, work fulfills the great commandments. Work fulfills the great commandments. Now, notice what I said. Work doesn't fulfill the great commission. Work doesn't fulfill our command to go and make disciples of all nations, but it rather fulfills the great commandments, which are found in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. It says this, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and all with, all, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Work helps you to love God. Work helps you to love others. First, work helps us to love God. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your work is a form of worship. God wants your work done. There are gaskets that God wants made, and he wants them made well. There are cataracts that God wants removed because of the fall, and he wants them done well. There are people with pain at the hospital that God wants to be relieved. And when that happens, God is honored in our work. There is work that God wants done, and one of the ways that we worship God is through our work. I want you to raise your hand if you enjoy your job, at least most of the time, some of the time. Okay, most of us, good. I got another question. You can keep this one to yourself. Um, How many of you enjoy your job more than Sunday mornings? Some of you would say, well, yeah, kind of unashamed in that. Many of us would say, well, it's different can't really compare apples and oranges. They're just two different things. And and that's a good approach to this. Have we ever thought that the reason why we enjoy our work so much, our job so much on Monday through Friday, it's because God created us to worship him through that work. God created us. He molded us to be passionate about that job, to enjoy it, to serve him, to love him in the midst of our work. It doesn't mean that we should stop attending church, of course, but rather that our workplace, the things that we do each day, are opportunities to worship God. Our work helps us love God. Second, help, work helps us love others. Work helps us love others by just getting us to rub shoulders with other people. We are provided with opportunities to love others. We're provided with opportunities to show the love of God to other people. But work as loving others is more than that. Not only does work provide us with opportunities to love others, but work itself is an act of love. Work is essential for civilization as a whole. There are few non-essential jobs out there, and even some that seem like they're non-essential are actually rel- relatively important uh, by providing economic income like through entertainment or through tourism. They provide a lot of economic income for communities. In the book, Work, The Meaning of Your Life, this man named Lester DeCoster explains this. He points this out. He says that because, because civilization is so interwoven and so complex, all of our work has value. Everything that we do has value. In fact, the chairs that you are sitting on, the stand that I have right now, were created by someone else. Now, how many of you think that you could make the chair that you're sitting on? Probably every one of us could make some form of a chair if we are given an undisclosed amount of time to do it. And it would be different qualities of that. But how long would it take you to make that chair? Not just to go to Menards and pick up the materials or to order them online, but to create it from scratch, to grow the materials or to harvest the materials that are needed for this, to create the tools that you need to harvest those materials to harvest the materials, to create the the tools to to put that chair together. Take us a long time. Everything that we, basically everything in this room, has been created by someone else. 
If you find yourself in a job that you think is relatively meaningless, I want you to be encouraged because in your work, you are serving others. The person who created those chairs is serving you right now. That's not a tangible, uh, visible connection where you can serve others, but it is a way to contribute. It is a way to serve others. But I think the most important way for us to serve others through our work is by doing the best job we possibly can. The best way for you to love others at your work is to do the best job you possibly can. In fact, that's your Christian duty as you follow Jesus. I want to give an example. Let's say you're a commercial airline pilot and you're piloting a 747 uh, across country from LA to, to New York. You're about 45 minutes into the flight and somewhere along the lines, one of your engines blows up and, and goes flying. Everyone on board's okay, but now your, your plane is, you know, it's falling out of the sky. Relatively, not, not a good example here. Yeah, I, I recognize that. Um, in that situation... You know that you need to land your plane. But you can't because it's filled with fuel and your landing gear can't handle the amount of weight from that added fuel that you were expected to burn up before you got to New York. So if you try to land, you are going to crush your landing gear. It's impossible. What's the most important way, the best way for you to love your neighbors, to love the people that are on board that plane at that time? Is it to love is it to leave the cockpit and go and talk with them? Encourage them and say, hey, we're going to be all right. Is the best way for you to love your neighbor to leave the cockpit and even to go share the gospel with them and to pray with them? In this extreme example, probably not. The best way for you to love your neighbor is to do your job as well as you can to get that thing on the ground so everyone survives. I know that's an extreme example, but it shows that our work is valuable. And doing the best job that we can at our job is one of the ways that we love other people. God calls us to love others. And we do that through our jobs and we do it through doing them well. What else does Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 say about work? Work needs rest. Work needs rest. I want to just read four verses to you here. This is from Genesis, the beginning of Genesis 2. It says this, Then the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Hard work and good rest are part of a healthy rhythm of life. Many of us have the temptation towards workaholism, working way too much. But someone reminded me this past week that we're actually more productive when we work reasonable hours and we get good rest. Work needs rest. That's all I'm going to say about that because we're actually going to spend an entire Sunday talking about the importance of rest for work. But I think it's important for us to mention right now because many of us need a reminder of that, need a reminder that we need to rest from our work. And also because Genesis mentions it's a part of God's original plan. 
his original plan for the way things would work in our vocations. See, work is worship. You've been given the opportunity to worship God at work. You've been created for work. God uses your jobs, your occupation to make us more like him. You've been given opportunities to conform to his character through your job, through your work. You learn dependence upon him. God uses your work for his good, or for our good, rather, in his glory. And I pray that we would be a church where that truth reigns continually. It doesn't matter what vocation we have. Whatever God has called us to, whether it's just temporary or whether it's a long-term career, whatever we do, God has called us to it and God wants to use it. God wants to be worshipped through it. Our church's mission is to uh, cultivate a passion for God and a compassion for our neighbors. And it's my prayer that we wouldn't just do that on Sunday mornings or we wouldn't just do that uh, on Wednesday nights or in life groups, but that we would see our work as opportunities to do just that, as opportunities to have a passion for God in what we are doing, as opportunities to show compassion on those who are around us through what we are doing, that we would be a church that strives to fulfill its mission, not just on Sundays, but every moment of every day, because God loves work, and our work is worship. We live in a society where so many people idolize work, where they worship it. And in that society, let us instead honor God. At the same time, we live in a society where so many people are idle at work, doing the minimum possible to get by. In that society, let us be people who strive to do our best because God is honored in our work. Our work is worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways that you use our work. I just pray that if anyone feels like their job is meaningless, or if they feel like they aren't doing enough, they need to switch careers. God, I just pray for wisdom. Father, I thank you for this series that we, are about, that we just started and that we are continuing over the next several weeks. And I pray that you would continue to guide us, show us how we can use our jobs, our work, to serve you and to serve others. God, I, I pray now for all of us who, um, after we leave here and as Monday comes, that we are uh, either starting vocations again or we are staying at home with, with kids. And, and Father, I just pray for your grace. I pray that you would show us how to worship you in our job. Show us how to serve you as we cultivate, as we create, as we mirror you. God, help our work to be worshiped. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.